for the old time people, time was not a series of ticks on a clock, one following the other. For the old time people, time was round, like a tortilla. Time had specified moments and specific locations so that the beloved ancestors who had passed on were not annihilated by death, but only relocated. All times go on existing side by side for all eternity. No moment is lost or destroyed. There are no future times or past times. There are always all the times, which differ slightly as the locations on the tortilla well, differ Well, the thing is with some of the stories I tell and some of the stories I share, I only ever share with indigenous folks as um, some of our stories are closed and that, that needs to be maintained. But also um, there's this... this um, very interesting pattern of white folks consuming indigenous literature as a way to um, perform allyship where they say oh my god I've read all of these books like oh my god I'm reading this literature oh my god I'm supporting these people so there's no way I can do wrong when in, in, in actuality it's just like you are of course reading this literature and getting to know the stories we're telling but that doesn't mean you are in relationship with us as a person as an individual from coast to coast to coast, indigenous writers, creatives, painters, artists, thinkers, academics, reporters, poets, musicians, and land and water defenders are rending settler space-time to carve out and expand bubbles of indigenous space-time, metaphorically and physically. In today's episode, we're going to hear from two such creatives. Jay Simpson is a two-spirit OG Cree Satu Indigiqueer with connection to the Sapotawayak and Sconin Cree Nation. They are a writer and a poet residing on the unceded and traditional territories of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish nations, colonially known as Vancouver. Their poetry and their prose has been featured in the likes of Guts magazine, Poetry is Dead, Sad Meg, Room, Prism International, Briar Patch, and Hustler Verse, an anthology of sex workers' poetry, amongst other publications. Their collection of poetry, It Was Never Gonna Be Okay, was released in September. Nicole Neidhard is a Dinna artist living in Takaranto, where she's working to complete her master's at the Ontario College of Art and Design. Through her work, she explores the relationship between land, politics, futurisms, heritage, and time. She is the co-founder of the Young Indigenous Leaders Symposium and the Grandswell Climate Collective. Be Me Up Adza Anali, her most recent installation at the Landback exhibit at Open Space Gallery, explores temporality, matrilineal connection, and the physicality of land. Nicole is also the creator of the Art for Dene Talk. In today's episode, we're going to celebrate Indigenous brilliance, explore Indigenous thought, and even dabble into the possibilities of Indigenous futurisms. We're also going to hear stories about the problematic ways that settlers consume Indigenous art, thought, and content. So far on Dene Talk, we've heard political stories of resistance, and we've heard personal stories of resilience but today's episode is called Resurgence. I'm your host, Cassidy Villabrin-Barakis.
Bouchou. My name is Jay Simpson. I am currently living and residing in the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. I've lived in British Columbia my entire life, but my people come from Sepotuayak Cree Nation with kinship roots to Kisikus and Skowden Cree Nation. When you imagine Jay's name, imagine their name in lowercase. I stylize it in lowercase as an inherent uh uh, transition away from English grammatical structures and the idea that a name needs to be capitalized as a as a respect thing and ultimately to me the the lowercase name is also aesthetically pleasing and to me um, has a calmness about it that I am often not afforded. Jay is a prolific writer, which they have been practicing since their youth. I always had a very attached relationship to the libraries in my vicinity. And uh, since I was a young child, I had always wanted to be a writer. So initially it was short stories that I had an attraction to. But as I began to grow up, I, I built a relationship with spoken word. At the time, libraries were a pivotal space for Jay, helping to spark their love of literature, poetry, and writing. And as a foster kid, I didn't have a lot of access to materials, and we didn't have money for books. So the library was a place where I could escape to once a week, and um, it was a place where I learned a lot of things and came into contact with a lot of new materials and it was a place of reprieve for a very long time. Now it's a little bit of a different story, but as a child, it was a very lovely place for me to exist in. While attending university, Jay explored poetry alongside their identity. They came across the works of Jillian Christmas, Joshua Whitehead, and Billy Ray Belcourt. Jay writes in prose as well, but when they utilize poetry... I think poetry allows me to maintain the gentle beauty of the things I want to say um, and feel. And also I, I love to use such rich um, imagery and metaphors that oftentimes aren't uh, appreciated in nonfiction essays. So I think poetry is just a different conduit for my multiple ways of storytelling. Nicole grew up on the traditional and unceded territories of the Tewos Tanos peoples, colonially known as Santa Fe, New Mexico. In Santa Fe, where I grew up, it's like really high desert. So it's in the mountains where it's 7,000 feet elevation. So like it snows a bunch in the winter and like it gets really hot in the summer. And but you just really have this kind of, I don't know, diversity of kind of experiences of the seasons. And her family is from Round Rock, a five hour drive west into Dinah territory. Um, that's probably more of like the classic desert that people like imagine when they think of the desert, especially like in the Southwest, uh, there's like kind of, it's just like the earth is all like red and like warm and filled with like sand and clay. And it has this really kind of, I don't know, amazing kind of like ancient energy about it, if that makes sense. Um, there's a lot of like mesas and plateaus and actually really close to where my family is from. Um, there's this mountain range and um, it's actually super green and beautiful and lush on the mountain range. 
Nicole's practice is inspired both by the land and that territory um, just kind of informs the way I think about land. Um, And it's kind of like because it's my home, it's where I really relate to the land and like feel most connected. Um, And because of that, it kind of shows up in all of my work. Like I tend to use like really warm colors, um, really like vibrant and rich colors because when I'm home, that's what it's like. Like we have these really beautiful, colorful, rich sunsets and clouds and flowers and trees. And And by her familial and community connections. Dana, like society traditionally is matriarchal. So um, I think that because of that, it's like a huge influence in my life and in my practice. Um, I, I personally come from a family of like unbelievably strong, like women and femmes. And I have learned like so much from them growing up and I have you know all these like aunties and grandmas who are always making sure that I'm like on the right path and like doing the right thing um and so I guess that just kind of culture of like really surrounding myself with powerful women like it it just comes through in my art like it's kind of like everything I focus on is like really um showing like these positive beautiful representations of Dine women and femmes and um yeah just trying to like showcase that beauty in a really like positive way in Jay's poetry they explore a duality of healing and harm I think it's difficult because um I think for sure there there are poems that have been very healing to write but then there's also been poems that have been very damaging to write because it means that I revisit a subject or a topic that that is quite difficult for me to harness at the time. And of course, there's uh, the idea that as an Indigenous person, um, my poetry is more listened to if it's more traumatic, is, is, is complicated at times. And it's often an experience that a lot of folks uh, in my in my circle also experience at times. And I, I think it, it, it can be healing, but also it can be quite damaging on how people um, consume and interact with the work. I think that settlers are often drawn to the caricaturization of indigeneity, whether implicitly or explicitly. Caricatures of the noble savage, the dying extinct people, or the broken people, afflicted by addiction, poverty, and pain. In some ways, I think that settlers get off on consuming the pain and trauma of marginalized communities. For me, I think it's this idea that as an Indigenous person, my my life is inherently traumatic, which which is true. But the idea of this like white saviorism of like consumption of being like, oh my God, like you're so brave, you're so strong, that kind of thing is is at times really invalidating because it's not about necessarily the content but also the craft and the form of it intergenerational pain poverty and dispossession are very real and present issues for many indigenous peoples but i don't think that's a complete encapsulation of indigenous people's experiences poetry i really explore the way it feels 
and the way it flows and I focus on the craft part also I don't just focus on the content it's not just the content I am so much more than than the content that there is I, I would love for folks to explore the craft of it and the form of it in a way that explores um the the way that I've turned oral storytelling into page poetry in such a way that that flows in 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 such a concise way that maintains true to my oral storytelling and respects um, who I am as a storyteller. With the richness, creativity, and vulnerability of Jay's poetry and of their prose, settlers are often emboldened to consume their work with the feeling that they have permission to access Jay as a person. Unfortunately, in a culture of Canlet, there is this idea of consumption where um, folks uh, interact with me as a uh, public entity and then um, consume me in a way that that really removes my own autonomy at times and that's not the case and that's not how I would like to exist I'd like to exist as a person first and foremost and not a person of like these past experiences and there are so many times where people will read my poetry or my personal essays and they think they'll know they know me but um as as a public entity i think that's something i'm coming to terms with the fact that uh because i am so some of my stories are so accessible people think they they know uh who i am and that they are given automatic access to to time with me and relationship with me but uh my kinship networks are very important to me and there's relationship and mutuality there. Um, and I am uncomfortable with people assuming that they get access to me. Was lucky enough to meet Kenahus Manual like during this like tiny house build that we were doing in Victoria for the tiny house warriors and this was like maybe like three two three years ago or something I can't remember exactly but she would constantly talk about like the importance of like art in these movements um, in like land protection and and you know revitalizing our culture but like because I've been so immersed in like the world of like indigenous art like very specifically like I've seen just how important of a role it can play I guess personally um like there's just so many facets to it art can be an amazing tool for like activism it can be a tool for raising awareness about issues that are facing indigenous communities um we live in a like highly visual world right now so art has this kind of innate ability to I don't know exist in that world and like speak to indigenous issues and ideas and creativity and brilliance um, it's just so dynamic Nicole's artwork is dynamic and brilliant and it reinforces positive imagery of indigenous femmes and familial connections 
For instance, the artwork she created for When We Are Kind celebrates everyday kindness and encourages children to explore how they feel when they initiate and receive acts of kindness. When I started doing it, it was really to try and like counter like, you know, negative, awful stereotypes that are imposed on Indigenous women. Um, but I've kind of like, I know that that work still needs to happen, but like for my personal like path, I've started just really wanting to celebrate the resilience and strength that's there um, and just focus more on like building up these communities instead of like constantly like fighting head on. Nicole shifted the focus of her art from combating the harmful myths and stereotypes about Indigenous femmes, instead focusing on celebrating their strength, resilience, and beauty. But then I think about art from like a cultural context too, and I think like for me, like focusing on my artwork and really like reconnecting to and like remembering like my culture, like art has been so integral in that. and. I think that's an act of decolonization too. It's like decolonizing all the like crap that gets like imposed on my mind about what is like normal in Western society. But like art is a way that can kind of like counter that and you can reconnect to like different ideas and traditions from your own like culture. Jay Simpson has a keen interest in Greek mythology. I would say it's a little bit of an obsession with Greek mythology. And they use these aesthetics and narratives throughout their recently published book of poetry. It was never going to be okay. The stories were just so enamoring and um, anything that had to do with that kind of divinity and the stories there is just so rich and full and so based on hubris and chaos and mess and and for me, it just was a way for me to ground some of the experiences I've had in a way that makes sense, in a way that is less damaging to myself to name. It, it's easier to to talk about desirability in the sense of Grecian gods and their desirability because they had massive fights about it. They cursed people. They were, there were battles over it. There were 10-year wars. There was... There was long struggles and it was it was something that some folks understand and they're like, that makes sense. And and to me, the gods have always just been of such an ambiguous entity. You know, Zeus himself had bore children. And I think that that allowed me the space and the time to explore um, my feelings uh, in a way that made sense to myself, but also was uh, in a way that was understandable to other people. Um, and I think maybe it has to do with a little bit of a God complex at times, but um, <laughs> it would be, it would be a folly of me not to call out my own um, delusions of grandeur at times. I've always been interested in Greek mythology and philosophy the Greek pantheon were larger-than-life representations of ourselves. Greek mythology is rich with stories of nobility and passion, but also by our darkest impulses, anger, hatred, and lust, brought larger to life by the powers that each god was imbued. Their jealousies, rivalries, and conflicts bled into our own, or so the Greeks thought, and their actions explained the natural world. Also, upon exploration of Persephone and how 
I liked the idea of who she was in her story, but I've always been way more attracted to her sister, Iris. And I've always been so attached to the goddess of discord and strife. Like she has been one of the people I uh, really pull from and relate to. And then as I was going through the mythologies, discovering that um, Iris was directly involved with Persephone and Aphrodite, uh, so much so that she started the Trojan War over it. So the story goes that the whole host of Olympus, including Hera, Aphrodite, and Artemis, were invited to the forced wedding of Peleus and Thetis, who would later become Achilles' parents. Ares was the only one snubbed from the invitation because she wasn't the greatest at parties. So instead, she tossed a golden apple into the party inscribed with the words to the most beautiful or to the fairest of them all. Hera, Aphrodite, and Artemis got into a tiff about who was the most deserving of the apple. So to settle it, they decided to choose the hapless Trojan prince Paris to decide. In a bid to seduce the prince, the goddesses stripped naked, but they also tried their hands at bribery as well. Hera, Zeus's wife, and the goddess of marriage and birth promised Paris political power. Athena, the goddess of war, promised Paris military prowess. And Aphrodite, the goddess of love, promised Paris the love of the most beautiful woman in the world, who turned out to be Helen, the wife of the Spartan king, Melanias. At the time, Greek culture placed high value on military prowess and on power. Quite to the opposite, Paris was preoccupied with shallow desires and gave the golden apple to Aphrodite, a decision that would eventually lead to the destruction of Troy. I was just like, this is such a rich nuance and how um, desirability and decisions can can have these huge, huge, huge consequences. And as a trans woman, uh, desirability affects me in, in, in very deadly ways. And I, I had great uh, relationship and also it just made it so much more um, of, of uh, being an, a way of understanding so my audience can, can recognize and explore some of those feelings because some of my, um, uh, I would say a lot of my audience is trans and is indigenous, but there are a lot of cis readers out there and I, I wanted to give them a way to understand the, the feeling and the the confusion and the mess and the anger and the the grief and the process and Persephone and Iris um, were really a part of that journey. In a 2019 Them article, Red Sanders explores how the history of Gothic literature as vilifying transness transposes into horror movies such as Psycho, Dressed to Kill, and Silence of the Lambs. Sanders writes, in each of these movies, all commercial hits and critical darlings, transness, cross-dressing, and or gender play is represented as a symptom of insanity and a precursor to violence. The idea of um, monsters isn't new, and a lot of trans theorists in the 90s, the 80s and 90s, have explored trans identity in regards to monsterhood, and then also um, the idea of monsterhood in Greek mythology is a cursed human, oftentimes, or born from human and God 
unions and the idea of curses and how these monsters at times were also blessed by the gods like the gods loved their monsters and and um the humans loved and feared their monsters also and and this idea of being a trans woman and being loved for being fetishized as a trans woman but then also the the shame and the, the disgust for folks being desi desiring me is is what makes me monstrous and Ariel Twist has done some very beautiful work lately in regards to monsterhood and and trans identity um through her MFA right now and she's been creating this gorgeous gorgeous series of watercolors where she explores um womanhood as as uh monstrous at times and she quotes Susan Stryker and some of her work and and she, uh, her poetry also talks about it and and for me being a, a trans woman has always been me being a monster and not just in in intimate romantic situations but I've always been unafraid to talk about um issues and and conflict and I often get the villain edit I'm oftentimes like someone who has said that I am burning bridges I'm burning like I'm burning opportunities and it's like I don't want these opportunities if they're causing harm to myself or my kin I don't want that that's not that's not that's not an opportunity to me that that's a that's a it's an act of violence and and uh the fact that you think that this is an opportunity that I'm going to take because you've made my survive my my ability to survive so hard and so dependent on you is is an act of violence and so me being a monster is like both liter literally in society and literally in the sense of like um people fear me but then also people love me and and it's very complicated because those who know me know me um in such a different way and understand where where the the monstrous part of me comes from and it comes from other people it's not it's not who i am it's the perception of me and and at times I, I i when i'm really upset i'm like you so you wanted a villain i'm going to give you a villain you wanted a monster i'm going to give you a monster because at times there there does need to be that fire breathing monster to get rid of something sometimes you do need that kind of thing to challenge institutions and i think it's a very complicated relationship and and i've been given the villain edit a lot in my life and if I'm going to be given the villain edit, I want to make sure that it's a villain you want to root for. Nicole expanded her repertoire to mural painting when she was invited alongside other Indigenous youth to work with Butch Dick and Darling Gate. They were tasked with creating a mural on the breakwater at Ogden Point. And that engagement for me was like huge. Being able to like say that I worked on a mural of that scale, like it was like over 150 feet long or something for that phase of the mural. It was a huge mural and I don't know, there's just a lot of pride that comes with creating these public art pieces that really like celebrate like indigenous peoples and our perspectives and worldviews um, in such a colonial city, you know? Um, and I think that 
that's why it's so important to work with youth. Like I've had this like kind of direct experience. And so after that, I started doing a lot of like youth engaged processes um, and community engaged processes, always with like a team of people who, um, you know, were around me and helping and, um, you know, around Victoria, I've been able to do a lot of really cool murals like that. Um, so I think involving youth is critical. Like, it's just another way to kind of like, really like fight that thing that happens where our communities kind of get invisibilized. And like, I think with youth that happens even more so. So art is a way you can really like hold up and uplift youth voices and perspectives. This previous summer, Nicole collaborated with Eli Hurdle, Gina Mowat, Morgan Mowat, and Brianna Bear, and local Lekwungen youth to... We um, wanted to create a mural that um, basically celebrated and uplifted like Lekwungen youth and their artwork. Unfortunately, because of COVID, the plan shifted to create 20 care packages for the youth. Specifically, like, Lekongen, like, so Songhees and Esquimalt youth, and we delivered care packages to them, uh, just as a way to kind of honor, like, how difficult, like, these times are right now, uh, and to try and, like, support them by giving them, like, something tangible that they can create with that's off a screen, maybe. <laughs> Um, so we delivered these care packages and inside of them was this process to contribute designs to this mural that we were going to do. Some of the youth submitted designs and the team got to work. We painted the designs for them um, and created this really beautiful mural that kind of spoke about the underwater world that's like all around you when you're on Lekwungen territory and thinking about how that world like intersects with the land and when we think about like land protection like we're also talking about water protection as well Um, and that was really important to us to be able to really think about like the water um, as intimately connected to the land when we're doing this protection work and I know that on the coast so many nations are really conscientious of that Um, But I think it's just something that it's good to keep kind of saying out loud and um, talking about. So that mural was really cool. Um, It's currently at Open Space uh, and we'll kind of talk with the youth about where they would like to see it installed once the show is over. Nicole is a huge fan of science fiction. Okay, so my love of Star Trek and just science fiction in general came from growing up with it. Um, It was kind of one of the ways that me and my dad really connected. Um, And it was one of those shows that was on at night. Like we'd always like watch like Star Trek or like Stargate or, you know, all these like great like science fiction shows um, that just kind of, I don't know, they made me realize like I can dream about new worlds and different worlds and It can be a form of escape, but it can also be a way to, like, imagine better futures, both for myself and for my community. And I think that's why I've really loved it. I've just really loved 
like the possibility that's within science fiction. I grew up watching Star Trek, Stargate, Battlestar Galactica, and Star Wars. I love dreaming of different worlds and of space. Science fiction sparked my interest in indigenous futurisms because it connects and inspires ways of thinking of indigeneity beyond a colonial context. In so many ways, indigenous futurisms draws directly from the work of Afrofuturists and Black futurists. And this is a connection that I learned about while attending the MST Futurism event, Decolonizing the City Through a Matriarchal Lens. Writer and historian Crystal Parabu created a video for the MST Futurism event titled Afrofuturism, a brief overview centered on Black Canadians. In the video, Parabu explains Afrofuturism in essence evaluates the past and the future to create better present conditions for Black people. This is done through the use of technology and often presented through many forms of art, music, literature, but essentially is an aesthetic and philosophical reimagining of art, science, and technology told through a Black lens. Prominent examples of Afrofuturism include the novels of Samuel R. Delaney and Octavia Butler, the canvases of Jean-Michel Basquiat and Angelbert Motuer, the Marvel superhero Black Panther, and so many more writers, thinkers, creatives, and artists. If you want to learn more about Afrofuturism, I highly recommend checking out Crystal Parabu's video which offers a quick exploration of Afrofuturism, which I'll link in the show notes. What really excites me about Indigenous futurisms is it allows us to imagine ourselves through our own lens. So much of living through so-called Canada as an Indigenous person is to be bombarded by characterizations, stereotypes, misinformation, and police surveillance. But Indigenous futurisms offer a chance at something different. Indigenous Futurisms is kind of like the core of my like thesis work because I'm in grad school right now at OCAD University in Toronto um, and like I, I don't know Indigenous Futurisms just seems like this really incredible area of possibility for Indigenous artists and thinkers and communities to really engage with um, dreaming about like our future but also, like, I think it can be a really cool way to, like, reimagine our histories, um, reimagine colonial histories, and, like, reassert Indigenous story, um, which I think is a lot of the ways that Indigenous, like, artists and thinkers and writers have, like, used it, um, is to really, like, challenge these kind of colonial conceptions of, like, what history is and what the future will be. Um, I feel like Indigenous Futurisms is like a reclamation of that. So much of Western European thought is hegemonic. From education, science, physics, and even our understanding of time are steeped heavily in Western Eurocentric thought, and so much of it generally goes unquestioned. But when Nicole thinks about time... Basically... When I think about Dinah time, my main like idea is that it's different than colonial like notions of linear time. Um, 
you know, we grow up learning how to read a clock and learning like the hours in a day, the days in a week, the weeks in a year, like this kind of very like linear progression of like time and temporality. But I think as like indigenous people, like, well, I know this, we have different conceptions of time. Um, and when you have different conceptions of time, you actually like relate to the world in a radically different way because the way time moves around you is radically different. So to me, that was like a really amazing, uh, I guess, line of thought. Um, so I, so I just started thinking like, what is Danette time? Like, what could it be? Like, what was it? And is there ways that I can kind of get in sync with what Diné time is? Um, so yeah, I don't really have an answer, but I think it's more like I'm just excited by the idea that we don't necessarily have to be tied to linear notions of time. Um, and there's actually this fantastic quote by Leslie Marmon Silko. For the old time people, time was not a series of ticks on a clock, one following the other. For the old time people, time was round, like a tortilla. Time had specified moments and specific locations so that the beloved ancestors who had passed on were not annihilated by death, but only relocated. All times go on existing side by side for all eternity. No moment is lost or destroyed. There are no future times or past times. There are always all the times, which differ slightly as the locations on the tortilla differ slightly. I think that everything in the universe is inherently chaotic and unknowable. To try to make sense of this chaotic and knowable universe, I believe that we make up stories to tell ourselves, to explain the chaos. These stories may be based on a pantheon of Greek gods, each connected to a theme of our society or an aspect of the natural world. These stories might be based on the scientific method, testing hypotheses, or it may be based on indigenous ways of knowing, connecting to the land and each other in relationality. I don't necessarily think that any of the stories that we use to explain the universe are necessarily better or worse because I don't believe in a hierarchy of information. But what I do think is that if we look through the world through a Western European focus, one that promotes individuality, capitalism, and liberalism, then that's the only way we're gonna see the world and the universe. Which is to say, if you look at the world through the perspective of a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. And like, this quote actually like, really got me thinking about how like, the earth holds all of these knowledges and the earth to me like to me like the earth is a time machine because all of our stories are in the earth and when you go to like I don't know like when I think about like sacred like the Navajo Nation is surrounded by four sacred mountains okay and mm -hmm. when I like go to the base of like one of these sacred mountains like I'm not just going to like some random mountain. Like I'm going to this spot that like demarcates where Diné territory is. And it has this deep, deep history that like my nation has had 
like in relation to that mountain and to that place. And like the land has recorded all of that. So like when I think about it, when I stand there, it's like I'm literally standing within all of that history in that moment. And to me, it's, it's just another example of like how differently indigenous nations connect with the land and why it's so so critical to protect it with everything we have and I think that's why you see us doing that um because the land like it doesn't just like support us in the present it supported us in the past and it you know it it has these like relationships to us and to our communities that transcend time like literally so yeah Oh, I just get so excited talking about it. <laughs> Nicole's recent installation at Open Space Gallery explores this connection between temporality and land. Yeah, the work is called Bimea Batsa'aneli. And Batsa'aneli um, is a matriarch from my community. And uh, she was a land protector. Uh, she was a medicine woman. She was... A leader in our community. In 1864, President Andrew Jackson forced many indigenous peoples off their territories to make more room for settlers. Nicole's ancestors were forced on a 350 mile trek in today what is called the Long Walk. So my ancestor at Satinelli had to go on that walk, but um, she actually escaped from the U.S. Army. Um, and she would have been only like 16 years old at the time. So it was just this like powerful story of like resistance to this like super violent colonial like force um, that she escaped from. And the only reason she actually made it back home to our territory is um, through the help of different um, animals um, and plants along the way. So she had this like deep connection to the earth and this like relationality, um, that helped her get home. Um, and because of that, she kind of became this like really powerful leader in our community. Like, um, it was said that she could actually like see the future. So she's like a seer, um, because of this like really deep connection to the world around her and to the holy people. So Nicole built a Dinna transporter pad. As we talked about a little bit ago, like I love Star Trek. So um, a transporter pad is like the way that, you know, in the show, in the Star Trek show, they beamed on and off of like different worlds or into different places. So for me, I wanted to create like a Navajo um transporter pad that basically allowed like land protectors and land defenders to come into our present moment in time um because we need them right now <laughs> like you know from like all of the assaults happening on like indigenous lands and territories in what is now called Canada like I feel like now more than ever we need land protectors from any time and temporality to be like supporting us um and maybe that support is like mental support or spiritual support but it's still there and I think we need them so 
this piece is basically a transporter pad that allows these land protectors to come into our present point in time and support us. Um, and it's made with mirror mylar, um, which is that reflective mirror-like material. So the main stencil in the back of the transporter is of Atsa'anelli, it's her portrait, and then on the sides are chief's blanket design to acknowledge her role as a leader in my community, and then um, on the like two other panels that make up the transporter pad is um, the Navajo words for protect the sacred, um, and it's actually just slipping my mind right now. Um, how to say that because I'm really tired and I'm still learning Navajo, <laughs> mm -hmm. but, um, yeah, so that's kind of like, and also like the actual base of the transporter pad is earth from my home territory. So that kind of speaks to that idea of like the earth as time machine. Um, it actually has the power to transport us through time. When Jay Simpson dreams of the future, Oh my God, I, at times I'm scared to communicate some of my dreams for the future because um, I'm scared the Canadian government might see it as too radical uh, and put me on watch lists. Um, but I just see like a part of queer Indigenous futurisms is, is definitely a, the destruction of the child welfare um, government system and apprehension system. Um, land back as not just giving the land back, but um, <clears throat> who it goes to, like, you know, in, uh, Emily Riddle's Indigenous Governments is Gay, um, talks a little bit about that, and and I think a part of it is the ability for us to survive uh, and thrive and find joy and love without fear of death and harm, and I think uh, queer futurisms also includes restitution, and I think there needs to be um, uh, some displays of restitution that include like the dismantling of colonial governments buildings and legislature buildings and um, the destruction of those those violent violent institutions and also the removal of so many so many statues and we need to be able to destroy these things in celebration and in feast and um recognition that there are so many ways to exist because there are so many different indigenous peoples out there totally oh that resonates with me so much and that's such a beautiful way of thinking about it like it's almost like we're creating these like these pieces of yeah these futures that we want to inhabit um and they feel like remnants of these futures, kind of, but they're also like how we get there. It's just like, again, that's a disruption of like time and thinking about like, how do we create like indigenous futurities that we really, really want to actually come into existence, you know? What gives me hope for the future? Um, indigenous children, I, I love them hearing their laughter. I live across from a school where there's primarily indigenous children. And uh, in my neighborhood, there's a lot of indigenous housing, um, public housing. So I see 
so many Indigenous children. My job, I work with Indigenous children and, and seeing their joy and their process and <clears throat> I advocate for them and I work with them and I fight for them and I've been uh, I've been working with so many children for so many years that some of them are now adults and, and are doing some good work and are finding joy and uh, what brings me hope is uh, like my kin and my circle and seeing the work that's being done um, uh, the work that Billy Ray Belcourt's done, Joshua Whitehead, Emily Riddle, Jessica Johns, um, Ariel Twist, um, Samantha Nock. There's just so many people who are doing such brilliant work. Uh, Brandy Bird, not just poets, but there are people like uh, visual artists, Mengijig, um, work done by CM Hamilton and Takaya Blaney in regards to frontline activism, Wes Harmon, uh, Lacey Burning, Eli Hurdle. There's so many, so many brilliant minds out there that I think that there is such, such an opportunity for all of us to be shining and basking in the light of these people like Evan Ducharme and Justin Ducharme. Um, there's uh, Devery Jacobs. There's just so much out there and there's so much to have hope for. And I think that if we refocus and we reinvest, there is such joy out there for all of us. Indigenous youth, <laughs> 100%, always. Um, I think that, like, I'm just, uh, like, I'm so blown away by so many young people today. And I know, I know people say that a lot and it can become kind of cliche, but, um, through like the work that I've done with Indigenous youth, both like just in like organizing and also in land protection and in art and um, in academia even and like in community, like there's just, there's so much vitality there and we, ju we need to support it though. Like we need, need to support it. Um, and uplift those voices. Um, but I also think like another thing that gives me hope is dreaming. Um, and I know that can kind of sound corny, but when I say that, I mean like actually like dreaming up new worlds. So I think the more that indigenous people are dreaming of new worlds and dreaming about indigenous futures and dreaming about like these indigenous existences that they want to inhabit like that's how you actually set those futures into motion um so that that gives me a lot of hope and i've seen a lot of indigenous artists and writers and musicians and thinkers uh really start doing that and i know we've been doing that <laughs> like within our communities in our own ways, like since the beginning of time. But um, I've just, I guess I've seen it more uh, in more like mainstream outlets lately. And that gives me a lot of hope. This has been Dene Talk. I'm your host, Cassidy Villabrin-Barakis. Dene Talk is written, produced, and edited by myself, 
with the support of Coco Nielsen, Glenn Swarnadipathy, Andrew Hines, and Nicola Watts. Special thanks to the staff and volunteers of CFUV 101.9 FM. Artwork for Dene Talk is done by Nicole Neidhard, and music for today's episode is provided by Sarah the Instrumentalist, Peter Sandberg, and Lars Meyer. Musi Cho to my guests for this episode, Jay Simpson and Nicole Neidhard. And I'd also like to say a special Musi Cho to Jordan Cooey and Phoenix Bain for their continual support throughout this project. If you'd like to find out more about Jay Simpson's projects, a link to Nicole Neidhart's art, or a link to Crystal Parabu's video, check out dennytalk.ca. Musi Cho for listening. I hope you have a nice day. Thank you.